Morning Christ community, if you would, please remain standing for the reading of today's passage. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that we, as your gathered saints, could worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that that worship would continue as we study your word this morning and what you have to say to it. Speak through Pastor Jeff, and may we listen with humble hearts and minds. May you be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. How are y'all doing? Sounds like it. <laughs> are you enjoying the fall colors, though? Isn't that great? We've had such a great September, and now... No. Yes, no, we're going to believe and trust the Lord that October will yield the same uh, awesomeness. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there in Acts chapter 21. We will be in that chapter pretty much primarily and a couple other passages. You can follow along with the message, just so you know. In your bulletin, also in your bulletin, are some probing, continuing the conversation questions uh, that I want to encourage you to take home or take really to your small groups and go through them across the table or across the living room with someone else to, to, to just take what the Scripture says, uh, take it deep into your heart and your soul. One of the most difficult things to do is to say goodbye. It's really hard to do to people that you love, to people that you've invested your life in. Paul's had to do this now uh, at least once, and he has to do it in this chapter at least a couple more times. I mean, he's, what he's doing is he's left Ephesus, and they have all kneeled on the beach there, and they have just cried their eyes out because as we heard last week through the message last week, Paul has told them, you're never going to see me again. I mean, you are going to see me again in heaven. We're going to be together in new creation. But listen, this side of eternity, you're not going to see me again. So people are just wept their eyes out. Now he is backtracking uh, his way back to Jerusalem. And what he's doing is he's stopping at towns where he has preached the gospel very effectively. And he has spent enough time in these communities to really build up a Christian community there. And what Paul told the Thessalonians is, listen, when we were among you, we longed to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. That was Paul's MO. Paul wanted to share the gospel of Jesus and his life. And so now he's coming to these towns where he's having to actually say goodbye to all of them because he knows he won't be back. Look at verse 7. Says when he had finished the voyage from Tyre, uh, we arrived at Talmes and we greeted brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Philip was prominent, if you remember back from chapters five or six, uh, he was one of the seven deacons chosen back then, uh, but also a very powerful minister for the Lord in terms of preaching. Uh, and he stayed, and we stayed with him. Verse nine says he had four unmarried daughters. Four unmarried daughters who also were prophets or prophesied. 
And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down uh, from Judea. And coming to us, look at this, he took Paul's belt, so he takes his belt off. Please, no one do that to me this morning, right? Uh, If you have a word of prophecy, please do not take my belt off. And he takes Paul's belt off. Uh, And then what he does is he binds his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So just like an Old Testament prophet, he prophesies, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard this, we and the people, all the Christians there, urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we, said, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I sensed that Paul was the kind of person that once he set his mind to something, he was very hard to dissuade. He was very hard to persuade otherwise. Now, two groups at least in this story, and I would argue all the way back to Ephesus, two groups at least have urged him not to go to Jerusalem, but Paul is going to Jerusalem. Having arrived at Caesarea and then in Tyre and Sidon, he's there in this territory. All these Christians are gathering, and they're all saying, please, brother, we love you. We know what's waiting for you. Don't go. But he knows the will of the Lord. And so Luke and all the church urged him not to return So our one big thought today, here it is, we're going to unpack it, the whole message, is going to be that the Spirit leads Paul contrary to conventional wisdom. He leads Paul contrary to the conventional wisdom. Now sometimes we feel so strongly about a course of action and we want to communicate it to someone because in our heart of hearts we believe this is what the Lord is saying. Now, what you will notice in both of the stories that we just, we just read, Ryan and the one that I just read, uh, they were urged by the Spirit. Agabus is a prophet who comes and ties up his hands and his feet. Now, Agabus, we're going to learn next week and the weeks after, is wrong. His prophecy is not true. I mean, he was well-wishing and slapping a God sticker on it. Now, no one stones him to death. This is why Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you stand to prophesy, you have to test the spirits. <laughs> you have to test and see whether this is from God or not. But he is bold enough to say, the Lord doesn't want you to go. And here's the deal. You're going to be bound and handed over to the Romans by the Jews. No, he, no, he isn't. In the rest of the story, we will find that it actually is the Romans who save him from the Jews. It's the Romans that they don't bind him. And what they do is they come in and the Sanhedrin is about to take his life. And they've gotten so worked up that the Romans have to come in and say, hey, we're going to rescue this guy. (laughs) Get him out of here. And they do. They rescue him from the Sanhedrin. And the original Christians, they, they, they feel like they are expressing their heart from the Holy Spirit. And listen, nothing, no harm, no foul. These folks are just trying to say This is the direction for your life that I believe that you should go. But Paul in his knower, in his heart, he just knows that God is leading him there. He knows that God has now a bigger program for Paul than just preaching and teaching and planting churches. Paul's imprisonment, Paul's death is going to ring louder and more powerful in the church. And Paul knows it, but everybody else doesn't want to accept it because they love him. 
And sometimes what people do is they express their sincere desire in spiritual terms. And they say, man, I really feel like the Lord is, is leading me to tell you this. And, I, and my first response is, I'll test that. Thank you. I'll put that to the test. And if it turns out not to be the Lord, I'm not going to show up at your house with a bag of bricks. <laughs> right? You're not getting whacked. I mean, it's, it's, we're not doing that. It's just we're going to test this word from the Lord. So, so what we want to pull out of this passage today is this principle of God directing him, God leading him against this conventional wisdom because otherwise the conventional wisdom is right. So number one, what is, it, what is the means by which we discern God's direction? How do you discern God's direction in your life? How did Paul know? Now, how did Paul know that this was God's direction for his life despite the fact that everyone else around him is telling him, no, 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 you can't do that. So when we're talking about means, we're talking about resources or instrumentality. We're talking about what is the stuff that God has provided for me to be able to discern his will in the world? Have you ever wondered that? Do you know that God does want you to discern his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will? We'll read about that in a second, but God does want you to know that. How do we? Well, the first thing that God supplies is a redeemed mind. But the Christian, the Christian has a redeemed mind. What do we mean by this? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, listen, here's what's true about you. You are, here's what you are. You are an embodied mind. You're an embodied mind. You're an embodied soul, an embodied self, right? So you are an embodied mind. God, by definition, is an unembodied mind. So when God, Christ, comes into your life, an unembodied mind inhabits your heart, what you call your heart. Have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? <laughs> well, what you were doing there is you were inviting God to invade your life with transforming presence. And when you invite God to invade your life with transforming presence, He does. And when He comes into your heart and He comes into your life, He brings His mind because he is a mind. He is the mind. Now look at what Paul tells the Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has known the Lord's mind? <laughs> who knows the mind of the Lord? Well, no one, except for Christians, that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Now in context, what Paul is talking about, if you read 1 Corinthians 1 through 6, it's quite shocking. Because what this very raucous, excited, uh, church was doing is they were taking each other to court. They were hauling each other to settle civil matters into the public arena, and sue Christians were suing each other, and this was being played out in front of unbelievers all over Corinth. This is bringing great harm and great damage to the reputation of the gospel of Jesus now. And so Paul wants to say, listen, you don't have to take your brother to court. You don't have to do that. You have been given the mind of Christ because you believed in the cross, which is an unbelievable message otherwise, than the Holy Spirit revealing the truth to you. Having received the Holy Spirit, you have received the mind of Christ so you can discern between each other what is right. That's what he's trying to tell them here. And so you and I have received a redeemed mind. How does this work? I don't know exactly how, but I'll try to illustrate it. Years ago, when Carrie and I, we bought our first house in, in uh, Post Falls, Idaho. It's a beautiful little town. At that time, you could buy a brand new home in Post Falls for 80000 bucks. 
I don't think you could buy a 4x4 shed for $80,000 there now. In fact, I'm sure of it. And uh, so at the time, man, you could buy a brand new home. We got a really cute little house. We had these two little kids, these beautiful little kids. And we moved into this little house, and it was perfect for us. It was way more house than we would ever need, you know, uh, at that time. And yeah, you know how that goes. And uh, then kids. And so we moved into this house, and at first we were just struggling to pay the mortgage and make it ends meet. I was a church planting pastor. Uh, other than that job, I had two other jobs. She had two jobs. We had five jobs between us. And so we were working. We were passing ships in the night. And so we didn't have luxuries like TV or anything like that. And I just remember two years in, we were doing pretty well. Uh, we were doing much better. And I decided I'm going to get direct TV because I just want to sit my children in front of it and have the TV raise them while I go to work. You know, like, honestly, that's what I was thinking. And um, actually, I was thinking, I'm going to let DirecTV help me to get a nap. That's what I was thinking. And so the guy comes to set up DirecTV, and he's there, I bet you, not more than 15 minutes. He was there about 10, between 10 and 15 minutes. And I show him where everything is. I go upstairs to make a latte or something, and he's done. He comes up, and I go, man, that was fast. He goes, oh, you already had a dish on the southwest corner of your uh, home. I said, I did? He said, yeah, you did. I go, wow, I'm, su I'm Mr. Observant, aren't I? I didn't even know that. Now, here I was. I had the hardware, but it hadn't been wired together. I, I could not receive the signals until the guy showed up to hook it up. And every human being is a soul made in the image of God. You have the spiritual hardware. You have the dish. You could receive signals, except you're not hooked up. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he enables that capacity. He brings it alive. He resurrects it and enables that capacity in you to receive the signals. How do you think Adam and Eve knew God was in the garden with them? Because their, their dish wasn't, wasn't broke. It was wired together. And when the Holy Spirit, when Christ comes into your life, this is what happens. You and I receive this capacity now to, to hear from God, to perceive the signals, to understand his direction for our lives. And so Paul just knows in his mind, he just knows in his spirit that God is leading him on, and the conventional wisdom today, at least in this case, isn't true. We also have been given an active prayer life, an active prayer life. God has supplied us an active prayer life. Now, I am not talking about, when I say active prayer life, I am not talking about Hail Mary past prayers. I'm not talking about circumstantial prayers. Now, all of us throw those passes in the end zone because we become desperate and we realize we need God's help and we haven't prayed in a while. We all do that and thank God in his mercy, sometimes he answers, the, sometimes he catches those passes. But here's the reality. What Paul wants us to do is practice a lifestyle of active prayer and seeking the Lord. Here's what he says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, don't, don't worry about anything. I mean nothing. That's really hard. That's hard advice to take. Here's how we do it. But in everything, through prayer, petition, and with thanksgiving, those three things are critical. Prayer is a posture. Prayer is a posture of vulnerability. It is just admitting to God, I don't have the resources. I don't have, I don't have what it takes. And then petition is actually making, putting in your request, making a requisition, saying, this is what I need, God. God, this is what I need from you. And then with thanksgiving, never petition without thanksgiving. 
Because God has already given so much, hasn't he? God has given so much, and we're to be grateful. So he says, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and here's the byproduct. Here's what happens if you do that. The peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about those words. The byproduct of this kind of prayer life is that the peace of God which surpasses our ability to understand it, to explain it, will guard our hearts and our minds. Let me ask you something. What do you guard? What do you guard? In the first service, I used the analogy of your gun collection. And I used this analogy. I said, some of you, I know that some of you have pretty serious money that you have dropped on a gun collection. Do you keep it on your front porch? Is that where you keep all your stuff? No. You guard it. Why? You probably put it in a safe because you don't want someone breaking in. You don't want someone breaking into your house and stealing something that you, that you treasure, so you guard it. You put it in a safe. You, put it, you safeguard it. What about your family? Do you lock your doors at night? I, I hope all of you do. I usually, if I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning because I fell asleep earlier, I will get up and I just know no one has locked doors. So I will walk around locking every door, just checking every door. Because I got precious stuff in that house, not my TV. I mean, that's, that's important too. <laughs> but my lovely wife, my kids, that, the, they are the pearls of my life. That's the treasure of my life. Dennis Macheski came up to me in the hall after the service, and he said, you tell the people in the second service this. <laughs> he said, I don't safeguard my, my weapons and lock my doors to protect my family. I want to protect the people who break in. <laughs> That's so Dennis. Don't break in his house. But what do you safeguard? Do you have a 401k? Are you handing out your password to that account? Are you walking around in the mall just handing out, uh, you, you know, your social security <laughs> number to people? No. You safeguard what is sacred. Listen, the most valuable thing that you have is not your stuff. It's you. It's your mind. It's your heart. And the peace of God, the Holy Spirit, will guard your heart only as a result, as a byproduct of an active prayer life where you and I are coming before the Lord. Listen, this is what prayer is. Prayer is access. Prayer is access. What this passage tells us is that we have been given two things. We have been given access to the God who provides the resources that we need. We, we have access to that God. We don't have to go through a temple cult. Isn't that great? We don't have to sacrifice like chickens and young farm animals or, you know, like we don't have to do any of that. Uh, we go straight to God, straight to the mercy seat. We have access to the God who provides all resources and we also have access to his comfort when he says no or not yet or not that way because we need his presence in the face of agonizing delays. Don't you? I know I do. And so the God of all peace provides us his peace and his comfort through prayer. And the next thing that we have is a morally praiseworthy world, a good world, a world that has been made good, morally praiseworthy subject matter, okay? What is morally praiseworthy subject matter? Now listen, God created the world good, 
and there's enough good in the world to meditate on, to dwell on, that we don't have to dwell on that which has fallen. And so what he says is this in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, what's true? What's true? Truth by its very nature is intolerant of error. Truth by its very nature is intolerant of error. Whatever is true, think about that. What else? He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, what does it mean to be dishonored? What does it mean to be dishonored? What it means to be dishonored is anything that diminishes the image of God in you. Because you were made in the image of God, and as a Christian, you are being formed into the image of Christ, and anything that diminishes that image, frankly, is beneath you. Is frankly beneath you. Because you are the regal royal image of God Almighty in the world. And so anything that diminishes that image is a dishonor to you. What about justice? What is justice? Biblical justice, now biblical justice means to make impartial decisions based on objective facts. It means to make fair, impartial decisions based on objective facts. Now God knows all facts, doesn't he? God knows only in all truth values, and he holds no false beliefs. So every judgment that God would make about you and your life is perfectly just because he doesn't hold any false beliefs about you. He's not prejudiced. Our God is impartial. He shows no partiality. So he's perfectly just. Now, what is false justice? False justice is when you recognize an injustice and then you try to solve that injustice with more injustice. You can't solve racism with more racism. You can't do that. That's not true justice. So whatever is truly just, think about that. Whatever is pure. We tend to think of pure, purity as moral chastity or purity as a sort of being chaste morally, sexually. But actually this word means to be uncontaminated, free of pollution, free from toxicity, free from the noxious environment of criticism. Just to give you an example, in our culture, we live in a culture where every person in our culture is trained to be a critic. If they don't like your movie, they tweet about it. Or they have their own, every kid like now has their own YouTube channel where they evaluate movies. It's like, I don't care what you think about a movie, kid. I don't care, care I don't even like the newspaper guys. They're, they're criticisms of movies either. So we have a nation, a culture of critics. Uh, cable TV, listen, if you spend four hours a day watching cable news and the other like six hours or eight hours of your day listening to talk radio and you give God one hour on a Sunday to listen to the word being read to you, can't disciple you, sorry. You're already being discipled in a noxious, toxic, polluted culture, a culture that is poisoning the way you think. Not in terms necessarily of content, but in terms of tone. And so, listen, you and I have to be pure. Whatever is pure, dwell on that. Think about that. Whatever is lovely. Is there anything really that is lovely? You men, do you think your wife, do you think she's lovely? Now, some of that obviously is subjective. I may not think your wife is lovely. No, I think all of you are lovely. but no matter how beautiful I think you all are, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, that lady over there, I think, is the most beautiful woman in the room, right? Like, I left this morning. She was coming in, like, getting groceries, and I left early this morning, and she just kind of grabbed me by my arm and pulled me in and was like, just bam, right on the lips. I, was, I hope that's not embarrassing, but I, that was a nice, hey, go to church. <laughs> Have a good day at work. She's like, you look good. I was like, thank you, honey. And I got in the car, and I started the car, and I was like, oh, whatever is lovely. Think on these things. That girl is lovely. I love her. Now, some things are subjective, but listen, some things aren't. God actually has built aesthetic beauty into the world. There is nowhere, nobody who has ever been from the East Coast that I can imagine who has suddenly come out here for vacation and gone to see the Grand Tetons and thought, that's, that's ghastly. <laughs> like, that's impossible. How could you think that? How could anyone think that? I was working a call center one time, and a long time ago, and I was working this call center, and I lived in North Idaho at the time, and I had a lady from, uh, like, the Bronx or something. And she comes on, and she's ordering these clothes, and I'm processing her order, and she's like, what state are you in? I said, uh, Idaho. She goes, oh, Idaho, I know Idaho. She goes, you know, I used to be sorry for you. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, I just thought people who lived in Idaho were so sad. <laughs> I said, do you still think that? She goes, no, I visited. I would love to live there. <laughs> That's my New York, by the way. I don't know, what, I don't know which part of New York that is. but it, w Yeah, everyone wants to live here. I heard a pastor recently who said, man, he was invited to come to a conference like north of Boise, Idaho. He's like, Idaho? And he was from Texas. And he said, what's in Idaho? And then he got there and he saw the Sawtooth Mountains. He was like, oh, Idaho. <laughs> look, look, there's objective beauty in the world. And everybody just knows it. And there are things that are objectively gruesome. There are things that are objectively grotesque, too. And so what Paul says is whatever is lovely, whatever is beautiful, whatever is attractive, let your mind dwell on that. And he says, whatever is commendable. You know the Bible has lots of commands in it. All of the commands of the Lord are divided into two categories. The command to love God supremely above all and the command to love people as you love yourself. So every command you find in the Bible fits into those two groups, right? And this is why Jesus said there are really two commands. Now, but there are lots of sub-commands. There are a lot of commands in the Scripture, but the Bible also commends certain behavior that it doesn't command. There are certain things that you see in the Old Testament or the New Testament that are models of behavior that we should follow. And so whatever's commendable, whatever the Bible commands, whatever it commends. And so we have this morally praiseworthy, this world well-stocked with the morally praiseworthy. We also have God's Word. Of course. Now, when we say God's Word, we mean this in two different ways. We mean it in the Lucan way or the way that Luke uses it in Luke and Acts, which is the gospel. So people are saved by the Word, the Word of the cross, right? That's the gospel. But we also mean this book, this Bible. Genesis to Revelation is the Word. And so God has given us the Word. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. He says, and you know that from infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The, the word of God, if you just sit, how many people have you talked to that have started to read the New Testament and they got saved because they read the New Testament? I can tell you story after story. 
It can make you wise for salvation. All Scripture is inspired by God, he says, and it's profitable. It's useful. It actually works in your life for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, the Scriptures do not just tell us what to think, and on a great many matters, it does. The Scriptures tells you what to think. They do. But they also tell us how to think. They tell us what to think in areas where they are clear, and they tell us how to think in areas where they're not clear. So, the Scripture has a lot to say about not getting drunk, like not getting inebriated, like not drinking so much alcohol that you find yourself sloshed, okay? The Bible has nothing to say about marijuana. Do you think anything in the Bible applies to the subject of marijuana? Yes, because where the Bible is clear, where, where it gives us clear teaching, it teaches us how to think in areas where it is not clear. And so this is the power of the Word of God. Now, God has given us this incredible resource to teach us what to think on doctrines and matters that God has revealed and how to think on things that God hasn't revealed. And those things we have to negotiate, we have to talk about. And so we have a redeemed mind. Christian, if you're here today, you have the mind of Christ. You can deliberate You can make right discernment, practice right discernment and right judgments in all things. And we have been given access to God in prayer, access to His resources, and access to His comfort when resources are not forthcoming. And we've given a world well-stocked with the praiseworthy and the Word of God which trains us. It trains us, teaches us what to think and how to think. So, those are some of the resources God has given us to lead us for the Spirit to lead us. Number two, what does the Spirit do? Like, what does He actually lead us to do and not to do? Now, here's what you need to know. There are some parameters here. There most definitely are some guardrails. There are some. And so the guardrails will need to be discussed because the Holy Spirit is not going to tell you to do everything that you would want to do. Okay, the first one is this. The Holy Spirit will never lead you into unholiness or ungodliness. It seems like this one should go without saying, but, it, but I really do have to say it. The Holy, the Holy Spirit is not going to lead you to do something that is unholy. He's not going to lead you to do something that is unholy because He is the Holy Spirit. He is God, the Holy Spirit, so He's not going to lead you to do anything that's ungodly. He won't lead you to do anything that is inconsistent with the character and the Word of God. Many, many years ago, I had a guy and his wife uh, sort of driving by the church in his truck, and they were having a knockdown, drag-out argument in the truck, and they just happened to be passing church, and then they came to visit me, right? So they pulled in. We had a visit. They brought the whole conversation, this sort of roiling uh, argument, into my office. I sat him down. It took me almost 30 minutes to just get him calmed down like just to figure out what is going on. Next five minutes, they revealed that the guy had been a serial cheater. He had been cheating on her with her best friend who lived right next door. Turns out she's not her best friend. And he was gaslighting her. 
So the rest of the meeting, what he, if you don't know what that means, it's kind of a new term. I just found this out myself. He was gaslighting her. And what he was trying to do is with his anger, he was trying to cast it all, project it all back onto her. This is your fault. And he was trying to do that. And that's called gaslighting, I guess. And, uh, and, and so I just stopped him. I said, hey, hold on. I, I went Alan Gunn on him. I was like, hold on, partner. This, this isn't on her. This is on you. You're not going to blame her for you having a 10-year affair with, with her best friend, so-called best friend next door. And so then I said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Do you want this marriage to continue? Yes. Okay. We're going to do three things. Here are the three things you're going to do. We're going to meet a week from today on Tuesday. And when we come back, then we'll assess whether you need professional counseling or you need marriage coaching or what you need. Before that seven days was done, he comes back. He drives back in on a Thursday. So he comes in Tuesday. I met with him. He comes back Thursday, and when he gets back, this time he's not angry. He's bawling his eyes out. I mean, he comes in just crying and broken, realizing he, he has destroyed his family. He's destroyed his life. And he's sitting there in my office, and he literally says this, I don't know what to do. He goes, my sons hate me. I go, you think? <laughs> he goes, my, my wife hates me. My mistress even hates me. And then he looked right at me and he said, Pastor Jeff, I just don't know what the Spirit is trying to say to me. I was like, what? I was like, bro, the Spirit has already spoken. It's called don't commit adultery. Don't cheat on that little woman, that sweet little wife of yours. Don't do that. Okay, so the Spirit has already spoken to you. And here's, here's also what the Spirit is saying to you. That you, you can heal this marriage if you put the work in and she's willing to forgive you, right? And so if you're sitting here today and you're asking me whether or not it's the Spirit's will for you to continue this relationship with this neighbor, the answer is no. Because the Holy Spirit is not going to lead you into unholiness. He's the Holy Spirit. How about irreconciled relationships? Oh, if I had a nickel bag for every time, if I had a bag of nickels for every time I have heard somebody say to me, right? Didn't mean to say nickel bag. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was a little slip of the tongue. Okay. Um, but if I had a nickel for every time I've heard someone say, you know what? I just, I'm really not getting along with this person in the church. This person is really getting under my skin and they really offended me. And I think the Spirit is telling me to move on to a different church. No, the Spirit is not telling you that. The Spirit would never tell you that. Why? Because that would contradict Jesus. The Spirit is not going to contradict Jesus. Jesus said, listen, if you're at the altar, if you're at the worship service, and you're there to give your gift, that is to express your worship to God vertically, and there you realize that somebody in the church has something against you, you leave that gift at the altar, you go be reconciled first. You take care of that horizontal relationship first, you become reconciled, then you come and give your gift. That's how important reconciled relationships are to Jesus. He wants you to push pause on your worship until you reconcile those human relationships with those made in the image of God. So the Spirit is never going to say, just go to a different church and take all that baggage to another church and blow that church up too. He's never going to tell you to do that. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not going to lead you to a course of action that is unholy, that is ungodly, that works against the Word of God. 
and the Holy Spirit will generally lead you into a wise course of action. Now, Paul, back to Paul. The Holy Spirit is leading him. Everyone around him is trying to give him conventional wisdom, and, the, and otherwise they're right. I mean, there are at least two other times in the book of Acts where Paul has taken people's advice. Once they let him down out of a wall in a basket to save his life, and the other time was in Ephesus where people were going to storm the stadium and take his life, and the magistrates and the Christians there would not let him go in. Right? So, so listen, he has listened to conventional wisdom because it's been right, and it's been godly, and the community was right, but now he just knows this isn't the way the Lord is leading me. But generally, we do follow those wise people that God has put in counsel around us. Look at Proverbs 1, 5. It says, let a wise person listen. A wise person is a listener, a good listener, and increase learning. And let a discerning person obtain guidance. A discerning person will want to get guidance from the wise people around them. And generally speaking, eight times out of ten, God is going to lead you through conventional Christian, godly wisdom. That's, that's mostly how God is going to lead you. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You see, God does want you to discover the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. God's will for your life is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect, but the way we do that is we renew our minds. That, that is a discovery made as we commit to renewing our minds. So even though we have been given a redeemed mind, the hardware, to receive the signals, we need to practice renewing our minds in the Word so we can discern His will. And the Holy Spirit Though he will never lead you to unholy choices, generally he will lead you to conventionally wise choices, the Holy Spirit may lead you to take a leap of faith. Now, three times, as we noted, in this passage, people are encouraging him not to go to Jerusalem. He knows it's the Lord's will. Now, when you get to the next story, the Spirit will speak directly to him and say, you are going to testify before Caesar. That's why I brought you here. And that will have to carry him all the way through to chapter 28 when he does sit on trial. Now, what he does not know, even though in his heart, even though he's nowhere, he knows this is the right direction to go, he does not know he is going to be tried by a Sanhedrin that wants to take his life, that wants to tear him apart. And that's heartbreaking because this was his former brotherhood. And he does not know that he is going to be in a shipwreck. Uh, he is going to have a near-death experience. They're called NDEs. <laughs> you know, like, look that up on Google. That's pretty fun. Uh, but he is having a near-death experience in this shipwreck. He does not know he is going to go through a harrowing shipwreck. But he is. He just, know God is, he just knows that God is leading me in this direction right now. And God will fill in the blanks and the details later. And sometimes God calls you to leap into the dark. Despite conventional wisdom, everyone else telling you, listen, this isn't a wise course of action, but in your heart you know this is a direction I have to go. I have to obey the Lord. Chapter 21, verses 13 and 14, then Paul said, he answered, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart in two. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he would not be persuaded because he knows it's God's will. And then they acknowledge, well, let's just wait. Let's see what the Lord's will will be. May the Lord's will be done. And you may be facing a choice this morning that's very difficult. You may be sitting here and you're in a situation right now where the solid bet is on not venturing out, not taking the leap, not taking the risk. But the safe way may not be God's way. Now, it may be, but it may not be. I read last week of a a church in Los Angeles, Christian Assembly Church in Eagle Rock, California. And in that article, it said that they had taken a chance following the Lord's leading to raise enough money to pay off over 5,500 people, 5,500 struggling families in the Los Angeles area, their medical debt. They raised $5.3 million dollars in personal medical debt. To be Jesus, to express the gospel, and to meet needs in a powerful way, and they were obedient to it, and they were blessed. Now, I can think of 5.3 million projects that I would like to do around here, right? But sometimes God calls us to give sacrificially. Sometimes God calls us to leap into the dark and take the risk because he's calling us to stretch us and calling us to something bigger. So to recap, the Holy Spirit will always lead you to holiness. The Holy Spirit will generally lead you to act according to established wisdom of wise counsel. The Holy Spirit may lead you in a different direction to challenge that wisdom, to do something that no one else thinks is either possible or should be done. And that's what's happening to Paul right here. Right now, he does not know all the details. He just knows this is the next step. I must take it. I must go to Jerusalem. Will you pray with me? Bow your head. Close your eyes. Father in heaven, we just want to take a minute this morning and just thank you and just say how grateful we are. And with hearts full of thanksgiving, we want to thank you for giving us, as believers, a redeemed mind in Christ, a mind that has been fixed, a mind that has been restored, and not only can sense your presence, but know your direction. Thank you. And God, we thank you for giving us access to you, unfettered access in prayer, that we come washed in the blood of Jesus And you are the God of all resources and the God of all comfort. And we praise you for that. And we praise you that you are morally praiseworthy and that you have given us lots of morally praiseworthy things in the world to dwell on. Thank you for that. God, we thank you for your truth in Scripture. This book is our anchor. It guides us, it leads us, and we thank you for that as well. God, we're grateful that you provided us a book that not only teaches us what to think, but how to think. And so today, God, we ask for your wisdom and your guidance. We pray for a gift of faith to be able, if you're calling us to, to leap into the darkness, to trust you however you're urging us. And we pray for strength of heart and the ability to trust you in times when resources are scarce and it feels like our prayers are failing us. And so, God, right now, we just commit ourselves fully and wholly to you. In Jesus' name, amen.